From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with film producer and talent agent Randy Nog. And I was thinking, okay, do I want to stick around and become successfully miserable? You know, so I wanted to rethink. And I'd been there now 13 years at this point. So I'd been there a while, knew the ropes. So I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to pack up, going to go back to Omaha for a while. I'll rethink things. Uh, I can always come back. And that's how I ended up back in Omaha with Reefer Madness 2, the true story in hand. Nog talks about his time in Hollywood producing the film Reefer Madness 2 and what brought him back to Omaha, where he runs Actors Etc. Limited and its entertainment division, Theater to Go. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats relies on your listener support and the best way to ensure continued coverage of arts, ideas, politics, all the local stuff that you listen to this show for is by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, or whatever you can afford. What, what, do, we, what do you think this show is worth? We got over 100 episodes in our backlog. We're aiming to make a lot more. We want to keep the show at the quality that you expect and, in fact, to improve it. To go beyond what you expect. So please consider becoming a supporter by clicking on the link in the show notes for this episode. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Randy Nog, who currently runs the talent agency Actors Etc. Limited and its entertainment division Theater to Go. He previously lived in LA for 13 years where he produced the film Reefer Madness 2, which is now available on Amazon, and then he returned to Omaha to bring a bit of Hollywood back to the heartland. Here's our conversation. I want to start with just this concept of Nebraska and its relationship or maybe lack of relationship to the entertainment industry. <laughs> uh, because people who generally make entertainment careers work as paying careers usually have to leave. And you have left, but come back as well. So I want to start with the question that ultimately I think all of these interviews kind of have in them, which is why are you here? Why are you in Omaha? <laughs> I ask myself that daily. Why did I come back? We'll get. We'll do the life story. We'll okay. get to that. But just like, what what is it about Omaha that keeps you here? Well, I was born in Omaha, grew up here, so this is sort of where my roots are, as they say. So, it was a comfortable place to come back to after my little foray into Los Angeles and Hollywood and so forth. But uh, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's. Just as good as any place else. I mean, outside of the big markets, of course, where you have a lot more going on. Of course, you have a lot more competition at the same time, as I tell people who all the actors I deal with who are anxious, the young ones, to rush out to L.A. or to New York. And it's like, okay, make sure you really understand what you're getting into. They can probably get far more work here oftentimes than they can someplace else. Well, and you have kind of like a, a family that had ties to the entertainment industry, too, right? Well, correct. I mean, beginning with my mother, who founded the company that I now manage, Actors, etc., in, well, they officially started it in 1974. So, I mean, did you feel uh, as you were growing up that you almost like had to get out of Omaha, figure out a situation in the entertainment industry? And, you know, like, was there more pressure to try to make it work outside of Omaha because she'd maybe tried and come back? Not really. Well, first of all, the family business, per se, back then was Nog Brothers Paper Company, which was around forever. So one would have assumed, well, I'll go into the paper company. Mm -hmm. And I did. I worked there in the summer, as, as kids do, you know, their family businesses and so forth. Fortunately, I will give my parents credit for not pushing me into it. I can sort of do what I want, do what you love. You don't have to go into the family business. 
uh, because we were both very creative and wanted to do creative things. So we started making our own little super eight millimeter films and we actually were one of the first people probably anywhere in the country to make our own video because we absconded with his father's portapack sony portapack which was one of the first portable video that we used to make films on or videos so it was something i always loved doing and i kept thinking about well you know after i go to school and college and is that something i want to go into and my mom at the time was continuing. She was working at the Playhouse, doing makeup and so forth. So there was always, as you said, a little bit of that going on. So it was in the back of my mind. And, and I have an aunt, uh, Ozzie Nog, who was a very good actress who was in a lot of plays there. And my uncle was, I think, president of the Playhouse at one time or another and so forth. So there was always some of that. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't necessarily being pushed that direction either. It was just something I enjoyed doing because of, you know, my next-door neighbor. And we got into this, and, and we recorded bands over the years. We had our own recorders, and we so all kinds of entertainment we worked on. So, I mean, who were some of the filmmakers then that inspired you to want to do it? The, the thing that may have influenced us the most to start doing this, we were big fans of the James Bond films. Okay. Because you know, action and adventure and all the things boys like watching, I guess. But, I mean, I loved all the films that came out at the time. I mean, I still do, where... It's hard to get people to go to movies anymore, certainly with COVID. But after that, you know, I still prefer to go watch something in a theater rather than sit on the couch and have your phone constantly interrupting you or even worse, the person next to you, their phone (laughs) interrupting you. So that was just it was always everything from the the old filmmakers like, you know, John Huston and so on and so forth, all the way through Spielberg and the others, just anything that came out. You know, we just loved that thing, and it was always, I want to be able to entertain people. Well, and so you said that it almost was like separate where you were seeing if you were still going to be interested in it after school, after going to college. So you, you didn't, did, was there a point where you wanted to study it? Were there programs available at that point? No, well, no, certainly not at the high school level. Now there are. But back then, I mean, there was, I think they had something called multimedia which back then was like slides and, you know, (laughs) audio, and that was about the extent of it, and I don't even know how much the kids got to do. But there wasn't much of anything, and I hate to say it this way and sound egotistical. I was so far past that by the time I got to to high school even, because we'd been making films now for five or six years, uh, that that really had very little interest for me. So it was then, okay, what would the next step be? And that became a bit of an issue it, it itself. Well, okay, how, tell me about that. What was the issue? What was the deliberation? Well, you know, initially it was like, as it still is, like, well, you know, you've got to go out to USC or UCLA because, of course, that's where all the big filmmakers go and so forth. But myself, I was, I don't want to say that I was antisocial, but I had my little circle of friends of filmmakers, and that was pretty much it. I wasn't the person who was going out you know, dating every weekend and all this stuff and meeting everybody. So I was a little bit more reserved. So the whole idea of, on one hand, learning the business, great. But going out on my own to Southern California where I know nobody and going to, you know, that scared the hell out of me. So it's like, okay, so what are you going to do? And my mind made a plan. I decided my first year as a freshman, I'm going to go down to Lincoln. There was nothing, film, anything down there at the time. But I figured, okay, I'll at least start to 
get the college experience. I'll get that under my belt to begin with. And I'll force myself to become a little bit more of a social person, so maybe then I'm more comfortable in these situations. I mean, I literally thought this through. It wasn't just by accident. So I don't know. I was a bit of a nerd at the time, as I still am, I guess. But that was my plan. So that's exactly what I did. I so happened to have some friends who were also going to go to Lincoln, not surprisingly. Uh, and a few of them were actually joining a fraternity. Well, that was the last thing I had any interest in. But, again, my little devious mind said, but if I did that, that would force me to become more sociable. Because I could sit in the dorm all by myself, and who's going to bother me probably? But if I'm in a fraternity, you have to do the parties and everything else. So that's what I did. I joined this fraternity, even though it was against my nature to do so, and took a, on a business major, figuring, okay, the courses I take, I can use in whatever I end up doing, show business or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. So my freshman year, I went down to Lincoln, was a business major in a small little fraternity. You made a lot of awkward small talk until you got good at it then? Well, I don't know how good I ever got at it, but uh, I got better yeah. at it, put it that way. Um, and then what happened, then my intention was, well, then maybe I'll try to apply to USC or something, and I was feeling more comfortable. Well, naively, it was sometime in the spring, the following spring of that year, I said, okay, well, I'm going to send in an application, and I got back this form letter. If it could have laughed, it would have laughed at me, basically saying, you know, you need to apply at least a year in advance because, you know, it's a relatively elite school, very small in terms of who they let in. And I had no idea. I figured, well, it was like any other school. Well, so it's like, oh, brother. Well, now what? <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Randy Nog, who runs the talent agency Actors Etc. Limited and its entertainment division, Theater To Go. He also produced the film Reefer Madness 2. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. Well, I mean, so at, at this point, was it conventional wisdom that you had to go to film school at all? Because, I mean, a lot of the major directors, up, you know, when the, the whole first almost, I don't know if it'd be quite a century, but like, you know, the first several decades of filmmaking, they had no film school. They were just making it up as they went along. Correct. Well, the early ones certainly did, but even the ones after that. But a lot of the times you'll find they had a connection one way or another, whether they lived in that area and somebody knew somebody who knew somebody and so they were able to get on a production and start learning and, and so on on the job. So it had gotten a little more difficult from that standpoint. So it would seem to me, even though I had already a background somewhat in making films, learning on the job, so to speak, when we made our little films as kids, uh, I really needed to have something to show to somebody. See, I graduated with a degree. Mm -hmm. Hire me. So that was my intent. But like I said... So it was like, okay, am I going to be, and I don't mean it this way, nothing against about University of Nebraska and Lincoln, but am I going to be stuck here again doing another year of business when I don't want to be doing that? Well, it just so happened, fate stepped in, uh, several of the freshmen who I, some of the guys who I knew, actually had gone to Nebraska the first year with a similar intention, not in terms of program, but they wanted to go to the University of Texas in Austin, of all places. But it was difficult to get in, particularly as an out-of-state student. However, for whatever reason, transferring after a year was easier. And that's what they were all, several of them were going to do. 
well, I knew nothing about Texas per se and anything else. Well, so they had all applied and were all going to Texas. I happened to just look at one of the catalogs that they had, and sure enough, School of Communications, they had a department, RTF, Radio, Television, Film. I'm going, wow. I could go to Texas if I could get in and already have some friends there because these guys are going down. Maybe I should do it. So literally on just a whim, submitted an application and got accepted. So I was going to Texas, sight unseen, knew nothing about, never been to Austin, didn't know anything about the school except they had a film program. Uh, do you think there's an irony that it was in the College of Communication after you just talked about how there was, this was the big hurdle is communicating with people? <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's something to be said for that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so, so you do that then. And, I mean, how long between or how long between when you got the degree and then you decided, okay, time for L.A.? Well, again, and, and the school was interesting on its own. And, again, I was in a, a unique position well past what a lot of the people coming in because most of them had done nothing they just wanted to be filmmakers knew nothing about it so I actually became I don't want to say a mentor but a lot of them would come to me and say well how do you do this Randy you've done this before and it was like that was an odd position for me to be in but it got me into a lot of arguments with some of the professors that's another story Uh, but once so I graduated fortunately with honors I might add Um, it was like okay now what do I go out to L.A. now? Do I not? Well, having heard some, for some people who did that and struggled mightily because they didn't have any connections or anything, I thought, well, maybe I'll go back to Omaha for a year or two, whatever, build up a reel that I can then go to L.A. and say, not only do I have a degree, see, this is the kind of stuff I can do. At least to me, that seemed logical and certainly an easier step than going out to L.A. where I knew almost no one. Right. And was was the reel then like shorts? Were you doing short projects or was it like commercials? What did it make? Well, what were, were the projects that you were able to do in Omaha? In school? Oh, in Omaha? Yeah. Well, my intention was because I at that time had a big ego of, well, I'm a graduate now. I know what I'm doing. The... Market in Omaha was okay. Most of what was being done, of course, was commercials and everything. Well, which it is still to this day for that matter. But I always had a, I think, pretty good sense of humor. And I liked humor in things. And back then, like now, <clears throat> where there are a lot of, lots of commercials that have, you know, a humorous, you know, bend to them. If not, they're just totally outrageous. Back then, it, you didn't see that very often. Nobody wanted to do... Uh, you know, humor because, oh, is that going to work type of thing? But I had all these grandiose ideas of, well, I can do this stuff because in college, you know, I wrote little humorous pieces and stuff. So I was going to come back and change the whole market for Omaha. You had some ambition. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to get a few pieces done. (laughs) Yeah. Only to find when I came back and started pitching ideas to ad agencies or trying to get jobs, they would say, oh, God, that's really funny. That's really great. But we'd rather just stick with what we've been doing. You know, this week only, 30% off. The same thing they'd been doing for 20 years before that. Nobody wanted to change or do something different or creative. And that became more and more frustrating for me because I wasn't able to. I mean, I got some odd jobs, production jobs, and did a few writing things here and there, but not what I wanted to do and not getting that demo reel, so to speak, that I was hoping to get by being back in Omaha. 
did your sensibilities form then? I know you said when you were trying to do James Bond knockoffs, and because James Bond, to really make it work, requires some real money and resources, so you had to sort of adjust to like, well, I guess so long as it's funny, people will forgive maybe a lot of the rougher edges. Was that the formation then of this comedic sensibility that you were trying to bring? To some extent. I mean, we just, we had, again, as kids, we, we liked what we liked. I mean, one of the things, again, we loved the James Bond, but there was a, I don't think they exist anymore, and forgive me if you do, <clears throat> a group called the the uh, Fire Sign Theater. They did audio recordings, records, and they were just completely off the wall. We loved them. We wore these records out uh, listening to them, and we loved that kind of stuff. So, again, we had a wide range of what we liked doing. And to this day, though, I always think of things or tend to, even if it's something more serious, I then try to find a little bit of a humorous edge to it someplace because that's just the way my mind works so that's what again i was trying to do in omaha but without a great deal of success so did you end up making your reel and going to la after that well i can't couldn't even call it a reel (laughs) uh sadly what happened i mean i literally spent four years plugging along and and i mean i had and i am a somewhat creative person including coming up with ideas i was one of the first people in Omaha, as far as I knew, to do uh, videotape depositions for lawyers because that had just started. So I started working for one of the lawyers, and he said, oh, could you do that? I said, yeah, I think so. I can't put any humor in it, but <laughs> and they're so dry and everything else. But, hey, I was making a living. Yeah. And I actually came up with a concept because at the time gas prices had gone up again, uh, came up with a concept of doing video uh, for realtors. So they could show homes without having to leave their office. People could come in, see a bunch of homes, and then narrow it down to the few they wanted to do. Nobody had done it up to that point. And I pitched it to all the local realtors, and none of them were interested. One of them actually stole the idea a few months later, bought a bunch of equipment, and then failed miserably, which I was very happy about. (laughs) Uh, I even took it out to Century 21 in Southern California and pitched it to them. But I was ahead of the the curve, and it wasn't for a few years later, then everybody started doing it. It's like, oh, nuts, but oh well. So again, I kept trying to do other things. So what happened after four years here, it was like, okay, it just so happened my sister who had was living in the Valley area, she was going to a place called Moore Park College. She, had, she was in the medical field, always was into animals, was getting a, a degree in exotic animal management and training. So it's what zookeepers get or animal trainers. So she was just finishing up her degree but was going to stay out in the L.A. area. And I thought, okay, perfect. I'll move out. We can share an apartment so the costs are less. I'm not getting anywhere in Omaha, basically. Now it's time. So – but, I mean, at that point, you still don't have a whole lot of connections to the entertainment industry. So (laughs) it's – it's almost like, I mean, maybe, I mean, you certainly have more experience. You've got like a wider resume and you've got the degree. Was that enough to start to make some traction when you got there? Well, no, but not for that reason. Uh, again, timing being everything. And most of the time, my timing is, I'm again, way ahead of the curve, <laughs> way behind the curve. In this case, nothing was going on in L.A. Production, the economy, I don't even remember what was happening at the time, but there was no production going on. I mean, you know. The studios were like ghost towns. So it was like, okay. Fortunately, I had some money put away. So, And we had a situation where it wasn't costing us anything for housing. We just had to pay for utilities, which is a whole other story, in Beverly Hills of all places. But 
Uh, so it wasn't like, oh, my God, I have a month and I've got to be out of here. So I had the time to try to work my way through things and figure out what I could do and how I could get in without the calling cards I was hoping to have. How, I mean, how does it happen that it's a ghost town? Isn't Hollywood always working on things? you got a million studios. You would think, except the money, and again, I wish I could remember what it was exactly, but there wasn't, there was a, there was production going on elsewhere, but within L.A., there was very little going on. Hmm. Okay. So, again, my opportunity to even try to get into a studio or more or less try to find a job, a low-level job, and work my way up through the mailroom <laughs> or whatever was virtually non-existent. So it was like, well, okay, I'm, I'm back to square one like I was in Omaha, so what can I do to make a living in the meantime? And, and so went from there. What did you land on? <laughs> well, a bunch of different things. I ended up actually eventually – this was a couple of years later, uh, a good friend of my sister's had her own PR firm, and I ended up becoming her head copywriter, but on a freelance basis. So I had time to do other things like make the low-budget film that I made and so forth, while still making a living and being able to pay my rent uh, by doing the copywriting for the PR firm. So again, all the things that I had in my background served me well to at least make a living. Not much of one, but I could at least pay my bills. Uh, and what happened was just by happenstance and how I got into doing other things, uh, American Film Institute, AFI, was having a, a seminar. I think it was a three-day seminar on comedy writing. And one of the speakers was a gentleman named Buck Henry, who some people may remember. Very good writer, uh, an actor. He was actually even on Saturday Night Live several episodes in the first couple of years. Very funny guy. And I really admired some of the things he had done, TV shows as well as movies. So I thought, oh, well, that'll be good. I'd love to hear what he has to say. So I signed up for this seminar. Uh, it turns out several of the people, fortunately not Buck Henry, but others had to drop out before the seminar happened. So to fill in, they got this comedy, local comedy group called the L.A. Connection, who had a theater up in the valley, to come in and sort of fill in. They were going to do their own little talk on comedy writing in teams or with a group. But what they had just been doing for, I don't know, six months or a year before that, they had started doing this thing where they'd go into the local art house movie theaters, of which there are many in the L.A. area, get these old, bad 50s science fiction films, you know, uh, everything from Plan 9 to outer in Outer Space to Catwoman of the Moon and stuff. They would bring them into the theaters. They would sit in the front row with microphones, turn down the sound. They'd have a keyboard player, and they would, quote, improvise a whole new soundtrack. And the audiences loved it. It really took off for them. They do it, you know, once every three or four months type of thing. Well, so in between or some of the speakers, they would do a little segment of their thing during this AMFI thing. And it was very funny. They do a little 10 or 15 minute thing. Well, the last day or second to the last day, they were getting ready to do it. And I was sitting next to a guy, you know, all of us are in T-shirts and jeans and as you'd expect. But there's a guy dressed up in a suit and tie and it's like, okay. They did their little thing. He was laughing hysterically like the rest of us. I didn't think much of it outside of his outfit. Well, it turns out he was the next speaker, and he was the, uh, I don't know if he was the head of acquisition, but he was high up at the acquisition department at, I think it was Fox. And suddenly the wheels in my head start spinning. I'm going, wait a minute. This guy can green light projects. He really loved what they were doing. Hmm. What can I do with this? And that sort of started my adventure with, with uh, my 
one feature film that I take credit for. <laughs> so, so they didn't make this connection that this was maybe the guy to talk to. You were the one to sort of bring it to them and connect the dots here? The L.A. Connection folks. L.A. Mean? Connection to the acquisitions guy? Well, what I did, yeah. I mean, when I was starting to think about it at that point, I had, there was a film that had already been made, just for your listeners who are much too young there, Woody Allen, his very first film he made was What's Up Tiger Lily, which is basically the same thing. He took an old Japanese spy film and dubbed it in with new comedic dialogue. And I knew about that one. Um, so I started thinking, well, okay, it can be done. And I know some people with some money, it won't be terribly expensive compared to going out and shooting something. Maybe I can work something out. So I started talking to the L.A. Connection people and their managers and saying, hey, would your people be interested? Uh, they claimed at that time, oh, we have all kinds of people want to make films with us. I think it was just sales on their part. But regardless, we sort of made a deal that uh, I'd had an option for, I don't remember if it was three or four months, five months, to try to get a film that we could do. And if we can make the deal, if I can you know, make a deal with whoever to use that old footage we would go ahead with it. And that, again, is sort of how it kicked off. So, I mean, was, was What's Up Tiger Lily considered like a successful model? Were there people asking for more of that sort of thing? Absolutely not. <laughs> <clears throat> but it made an impact on you? Well, I, I remembered it. Yeah, and okay. it was, it, it, it well, and I'm not going to say anything against other filmmakers, but it really, it was very dated. And from what I understood story-wise, it was weird. He had supposedly made it, it was only about an hour long, and the studio wanted it for feature length, so they added all this stuff, including there's a band, The Loving Spoonful. Yeah, those they weird added, scenes. Yeah, yeah, that just came in, had nothing to do with anything, and then it would go back to the story. Yeah. They added that just to lengthen it out. Yeah, and the, not, not a band that particularly fit with the aesthetic of the oh, movie. Oh, absolutely not. It was almost like they just cut away to somebody doing a song for no reason than to just give you three more minutes of something to look at. Right. But it was the fact that it had at least been out there. Mm -hmm. And it turned out, actually, there was one other film, actually, by that same group I'd mentioned, the Firesign Theater. They tried to do it a few years earlier. Nobody knew about it. I didn't know about it. And I don't think it ever went anywhere. I don't even remember what it was called. Uh, but it hadn't really been done. But again, it was like, okay, this is something different and unique. They've already got a following in L.A., so maybe you know we can make this work. So it then became this adventure of trying to now find a film to do it with. I'm talking with Randy Nog, who runs the talent agency Actors Etc. Limited and its entertainment division Theater to Go, as well as having produced the film Reefer Madness 2, which is now available on Amazon. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Please leave us a review while you're there. Today I'm talking with Randy Nog, who currently runs the talent agency Actors Etc. Limited and its entertainment division Theater To Go. He previously lived in L.A. where he produced the film Reefer Madness 2, which is now available on Amazon, and then he returned to Omaha to bring a bit of Hollywood back to the heartland. Here's the rest of our conversation. And so how did you land on Reefer Madness? All right, that's a whole show on its own. I'll, I'll try to abbreviate it. Well, everybody's heard of Murphy's Law. Everything can go wrong, would go wrong. Well, eventually, through the group, it became Randy's Law. Not only everything that can go wrong will go wrong, things that can't go wrong will go wrong. <laughs> and that became the, so, the whole way we did this film. 
So we were going to do Plan 9 from Outer Space because it really, it was something people knew as one of the worst films ever made. Uh, and it really worked well with the sort of story, semi-story they had that they had done when they did it live. So I set out trying to find, okay, who owns this now? Ed Wood was dead. He was the director of the film, writer. writer. Uh, so I did this search around the country. There was a way back then I could do it pre- pre-internet, so it wasn't as easy. But there's all this interconnected, these film collectors around the country. I ended up eventually finding a gentleman of all places in Kansas City who said, oh, I own the rights. I bought it from his widow. He even had the original negative. He even had a version in Spanish, which I would have loved to have seen, just out of curiosity, never did. But he, So he had all the film elements, as they called. So I figured, okay, well, this makes sense that he has everything. So we were going to go ahead with it. Well, talking to my lawyers and so forth, just as we were getting ready to maybe proceed, this other guy came out of the woodwork. A name came up. Oh, this guy claims he owns it, and he was in L.A. So my attorney sent a letter saying, could you show us your documentation because we think this other – well, he wouldn't respond to anything, which led me even more to believe he didn't have any rights. But he had sold rights, TV rights, to, like, local TV stations and stuff. We could not get a response, couldn't get a response. I even went to his apartment and left a note in his door trying to get him to respond. Would not respond. So I was – said to the attorneys, okay, let's just go ahead. He obviously doesn't have any connection, otherwise he'd be talking to us. They said, no, you can't do this because somebody's going to end up suing you if you pursue this, or if it's a success, they're really going to sue you, and if nothing else, it's going to be a major pain, and no distributor is going to touch this until you get this settled. So I couldn't settle it with a guy, so I tried to get my guy in Kansas City to contact the other guy and threaten a lawsuit he said, no, he wouldn't do it. He wasn't going to spend the money legally to, to do it. So it's like, oh. So I'd spent all this time trying to find Plan 9, all this stuff. Now I was starting to run out of time because I only had so much time before right. my option ran out. Yeah. So then became the big search. I went through their entire catalog of all the films L.A. Connection had done, like Catwoman of the Moon and all these others, obscure films. Uh, most of them still owned by studios, surprisingly, and the studios would not talk to me. They weren't making any money on these things, which it's like I kept saying, look, this is a way you can make money on these things sitting in your library. You're not making any money off of it. They wouldn't even talk to me. Why do you think that is? I wish I knew. To this day, I don't, other than they just didn't want to take the time or figure, ah, it's too small. Yeah, not enough money. Yeah, probably, even though I give them a percentage and everything else, but okay. So it was desperation time. Well, one of the films they had also done was Reefer Madness. The problem is Reefer Madness was 1936. So what is my hope of, first of all, finding out who owns it now? If there's a good negative someplace, it had been a big cult film, late 60s, early 70s, and everybody knew the name, even if they hadn't seen it. Uh, The history of it, it, an organization called Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, they actually got a hold of it, I think, to begin with and started using it as a fundraiser. Eventually, they turned it over to New Line Cinema, who then pushed it out all around the country, midnight movies and so forth. That's where it really took off as this big cult film. So I figured, well, maybe they own the rights. Well, it turned out, again, researching it, nobody owned the rights. It was public domain? It was public domain. The original filmmakers actually never even copyrighted it to begin with. They had what they call a common law copyright, but at the time, I don't know, it was like 18, 20 years at most, so it had long since expired. 
Uh, so, oh, perfect. No rights to deal with. Can I find a good copy of it? Ended up tracking down what I thought was the original 35-millimeter negative. Where was it? Library of Congress. So I contacted the Library of Congress, jumped through all the hoops, said, just so I can see the quality, can you send me one reel? I'll pay for it uh, of the negative, and I'll print it up. Just I want to see it. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Then they called me back a few days later. We can't find it. We can't find the negative. You're the Library of Congress. <laughs> you can't find the negative. Someplace along the line, years before, somebody checked it out, obviously never returned it. They couldn't find it anywhere. And so how much time do you have left now? Like how much is the clock? Not a lot. <laughs> okay. You know, maybe a few weeks at most. Oh, man. Wow. So it's like, oh, no. I mean, they had one 16-millimeter print. Well, I didn't want to have to blow up a 16-millimeter to 35. I mean, the quality. I didn't mind a few scratches and this and that. It's an old film. People mm-hmm. are expect that. Plus, finding a complete version. It had been edited down so many times to fit on TV for like an hour or less. So there were lots of horrible versions cut up, but not what we were looking for. So again, I had to search around the country, the filmmakers. Well, coincidentally, the guy in Kansas City <laughs> had a 35-millimeter copy. He sent me a reel. I looked at it. Okay, not too bad. Let's. So I made a deal with him, went ahead and finalized the deal with the L.A. Connection, got the thing out there. Here's what we're going to do. Got them started on the script, only to then find that the rest of the reels weren't in quite as good a shape as the one he sent me. So we had to work around things. It was still a complete version. So there's some jokes in the film making fun of some of the problems within the film. And we actually duplicated a few scenes a couple of times so we could make some fun of things. <laughs> you didn't have to put any Love and Spoonfuls music videos in No, there. no. But uh, again, so that's how I got into doing that. And that's how the film, which is called Reefer Madness 2, The True Story, came about, of which I do have a copyright. I wasn't stupid enough like the original <laughs> filmmakers. And that's how it got made. But then again, it just went on and on and on, these, these things that kept roadblocking us from getting anywhere with it well so okay you finish it you put it out there and then it was kind of its own struggle to figure out how do we get this thing out there how do we get people to see it and then maybe make some money out of the whole thing correct correct i mean all the money came from friends and family who frankly invested more in me than in the project which put a whole lot more pressure on me (laughs) uh so it was just finding a distributor and again i was willing to make it wasn't going to cost much to get them to do it They didn't have to put any production money because it was pretty much done. We did have to put a prologue on the front end just to lengthen it out to more like 80 minutes. So it was going out and finding a distributor, which was interesting. I had Some of them had contacted me ahead of time because in the trade papers, I always list films that are being made. And I had some of the studios and distributors, oh, what is this? What are you doing? And so forth. And I would tell, oh, it's going to be great and this and that. And I would even send them a few clips that we would have just to sort of tease them a little bit with it. So I had interest going in. So I kept sending it to them uh, one at a time because I only had one copy. Kept getting rejected over and over and over again. And it was very frustrating because it was like, well, okay, we've done it with test audiences, little test audiences. It plays well. People like it. What's going on here? I think it was Orion, which was a fairly decent-sized studio at the time, sent it there. It was on a Friday. Called him on a Monday, said, so what do you think? Oh. Randy, I got to tell you, we're so happy you sent this to us. We all laughed. We had a great time. It just, it got us in a great mood for the weekend. Thank you so much for sending this. I'm thinking, ah, finally. I said, so, what kind of deal can we make? Oh, well, well, we're not interested. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You just said you loved it. It was great. It was, oh, yeah, yeah, all that's true. But 
we're only looking for something that we can open big, you know, big opening weekend. And this is a film that's going to have to be handled small, uh, word of mouth, and we're not interested in that. We want something that we can just open big. And I suddenly realized all these studio distributors, it's probably the same thing. So then I had to take the next step. <laughs> which was a self-distribution, which was a lot more complicated. Well, no, that right? it wasn't even self no? okay. Not even then. I had to go to the smaller distributors. And these are some of the slimiest individuals you've ever seen <laughs> in your life. I hate to say that, but it was true, at least at the time, including one. And this is a story I like telling because it's very Hollywood. I walked in, and most of the time I would just send the thing in and they'd get back to me and whatever. This one, they were doing the whole schmoozing, the whole thing. They had me sit down at a table. There are 10 of them around this table. They're pitching, oh, we loved it, and it was this, and it was that. And this whole, like I was the best filmmaker in the world, and I'm going, oh, this is just peculiar. <laughs> but okay, I like it better than just the total rejection. So they're telling me how wonderful it is, including the president of the company. He's there, and they're telling me all this stuff, and it's like, okay, but it just didn't feel quite right. But okay, let me see what they're offering. They gave me a contract to look at, to talk to my attorneys. But most importantly, the guy, the president of the company, just something about him bothered me. I mean, he was saying all the right things, but it just, yeah, you know. So I looked through the contract before I was able to get it to my attorney, and there was a clause in there that's not terribly unusual called uh, uh, cross-collateralization. It's an accounting-type thing where basically – they throw all their expenses into one pot for all the films. And so if they have one successful film, it basically pays for everybody. And it's like, well, wait a minute. So if I have a successful film and you got six others that aren't, all my profits go to paying for that, which is basically what it was. Because they said, oh, they wanted to take it to the Cannes Film Festival. I said, this is not something from the Cannes <laughs> Film Festival. But uh, anyway, so I talked to my attorneys and said, this doesn't make sense. Well, they were saying, go ahead and make the deal. At least it'll get out there. Yeah, you're not going to make any money, but. And I said, I can't do that. Again, friends and family put money into this. I can't knowingly walk into something knowing they're never going to see their money. But, I mean, you didn't know for sure that there would be money at the end of the road, did you? Or No, even if it went to somebody else. But going in with something knowing full well we were never going to see any money. I couldn't in good conscience do that. So okay. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, I, I learned at that point to trust my instincts because six, seven months later, there was an article in the trade papers. That president of that particular uh, distributor embezzled all the money, moved to Mexico. <laughs> so wow. God knows where my film would have been had I signed that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was eternally grateful that I didn't. But so then I went about trying all the others, couldn't find anything until uh, I find one guy, one small distributor who had a fairly decent reputation. They had actually done some cult films, made a deal with him, uh, and uh, it turns out made the deal because his secretary liked it. He never actually watched it. Uh, but that, I don't care. Yeah. It was a halfway decent deal, you know, small time. But anyway, they knew supposedly what they were doing. But then again, Randy's law came into effect. He decided to do a test screening someplace outside of L.A. It's going to be up in Seattle. Great, Seattle's a wonderful town. And it was like a Sunday afternoon in conjunction with some radio station. Problem is nobody bothered to check the calendar. So our film was starting like on a 2, 2 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon radio station promotion. Problem was, 1 o'clock, 
was the kickoff between the Seattle Seahawks and I think the Raiders for a playoff spot. And it's like, you got to be kidding me. So, and they're as crazy about the Seahawks as like Nebraskans are for the Cornhuskers. Right. So it's like, nobody's going to show up for our film. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Randy Nog, producer of Reefer Madness 2, and who runs the talent agency Actors Etc. Limited here in Omaha. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what issue is on your mind this week in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. Yeah. So did anyone show up? 25 people. Okay. Is that, and, uh, that's well, not enough even in those well, co- in that context? this was a theater of like for 300. Okay. Yeah. But it so happened, and before I knew most of this stuff, I happened to have a connection who knew somebody at this particular theater in Seattle and gave me the name of the projectionist of all people because I was going to check in over the weekend and see how things went. So I called the guy and found out all this. Oh, God. Oh, no. He said something interesting happened. He said comedies in particular, and he's back in the booth. Projection booths are noisy. You can't hear much. He said, you know, unless you got at least 100 people out there, you don't hear any laughing or anything because, you know, there's a psychology of the audience. If it's a small group, people don't tend to laugh out loud. If there are lots of people, they do. Well, he was sitting there doing whatever he was doing while I was running, you know, notes or business stuff. And all of a sudden, he started to hear some laughter. He didn't think about it at first. And then a few minutes later, some more laughs. And he started thinking, oh, well, more people must have come in. So he looked out at the little people, and it was the same 25 people. And he said, you know, that doesn't happen. He said, if you can get 25 people in a big theater laughing, I think you've got something here. It's, it was too bad these circumstances happened this way, but I think if you can get it in the theaters, word of mouth is going to go and you guys are going to have something. So I turned what was otherwise a horrible circumstance into, okay, this is good. So I went in on Monday, talked to my distributor, and he immediately said, oh, Randy, 25 people, we got a problem with this. I said, wait. I told him the whole story. He said, oh, it didn't matter about the football game. If people wanted to come see it, they would come see it. And it's like, what? (laughs) And so he was at that point convinced the film wasn't going to go anywhere in the theaters. He wasn't going to be able to do anything in the theaters. Nobody was going to come and watch it. He didn't say that. But what I found, he was going to do all the pre-sales, sell the video rights and everything else. Not unusual, Mm -hmm. especially small distributors. Well, he wasn't able to pre-sell it. And I know some of these people who I had talked to long before him who were very interested. I thought, well, this doesn't make any sense. It's a better film than the little clips I sent them. Why isn't anybody? Well, I talked to one of them when I found out who he had talked to. And they said, oh, yeah, it's really good. But he wasn't willing to guarantee he was going to put it into the theaters. And we can't put this out on video if nobody knows what it is. Because back then, you know, it was pre-internet and there was no streaming. Nobody was going to know what this was who wanted to buy video rights to a film nobody had ever heard of. And that's what he was doing. And so at this point, are you, you're kind of having a renewed confidence and a spark of like, I think I know how to do it better than everybody I'm talking to? No, but I couldn't find somebody who would. <laughs> Therein lies the problem. So basically, we had the one good thing I did with his contract. I had a clause in there that if he didn't put it into the theaters within whatever it was, six months or nine months, rights reverted back to me. So the rights reverted back to me. I had to still pay him his expenses, which I disagreed with. My attorney said it's going to cost more to take him to court, so just pay it. So a few thousand dollars more out of my pocket I paid him. So now I had it. So that's where the self-distribution started. And nothing I would ever recommend to anybody. (laughs) But I, I 
was marginally successful in that I got it into a few film theaters around the country, including in New York City, Greenwich Village of all places. Uh, it was always it as a midnight movie or something, but fine, I don't care. I'll get reviews, get word of mouth started. The problem was, again, none of them could leave it long enough for word of mouth to start spreading. I got some surprisingly good reviews because it's kind of oddball thing. I wasn't sure we were going to get reviews, but 90% of the reviews were good. So I was pleased about that. But again, I couldn't get anybody to leave it for week after week and let it build up. So it just languished, basically, and I couldn't keep putting it in one film, one theater at a time for a couple of weeks. It was way too expensive to do with advertising and everything else. So it's like, well, now what do I do? So it sat on the shelf for a long period of time. I eventually said, okay, fine, I'm going to just go ahead and put it out on DVD, try to market it myself, which I did. Yeah, we sold a little bit here and there, but again, nobody had heard of it, even though I have a wonderful website, I think. Well, I finally had it in the last a year now, have it on Amazon. So right. now people can stream it, which is, of course, what people do now, try to stream it. The problem is Amazon doesn't let you advertise it. So, <laughs> back to square one. <laughs> well, so did this whole experience then sour you on the idea of doing more? And then, like, is that sort of where the end of the L.A. experience, did it, did it come out of all of this frustration? You mean leaving L.A.? Yeah. Well, only that I was running out of money. The, the PR job I had, uh, the woman, she had just had her second uh, uh, pregnancy and had twins, and she was going to take off for six months, which would have been fine. But after six months, she decided she was going to take off another six months, which suddenly, okay, my bank account isn't going to like this anymore. So it's like, okay, do I stay around here, try to find some other work? And I had a few friends that were just starting to make it, finally. But I found a very interesting thing that happens with people in L.A. When you're at that level of just making it, you become so paranoid about you have to take every job. You can't take a vacation. You can't do anything because if you don't take that job, you may never have another job again. And so they were getting success, but they were miserable in their success. And I was thinking, okay, do I want to stick around and become successfully miserable? You know, so I wanted to rethink. And I'd been there now 13 years at this point. So I'd been there a while, knew the ropes. So I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to pack up, going to go back to Omaha for a while. I'll rethink things. Uh, I can always come back. And that's how I ended up back in Omaha with Reefer Madness to the True Story in hand, along with a car full of plants and all these other things that I brought back with me. Well, you brought a little bit of Hollywood back with you, right, with your job now? Well, yeah, but I, it's very funny. I had no interest in doing anything with my mom's company, the casting agent. I mean, casting was like, oh, God, who wants to do that? There's nothing creative about that. It, it's a business. Nothing wrong with it. But there's nothing about that. I, I'm more into the creative side of things. I want to do creative things, which I continued to do. Eventually, I helped because she needed help, took over a little bit here and there. She had an entertainment division, which she had started in 87, called Theater to Go. And what they had started doing, besides booking entertainers occasionally, they had some in-house uh, interactive murder mysteries that they would book. And I think at the time she had maybe two of them that she had written. That interested me more. I could write, I could direct, and so forth. There was the creative side I was looking for. So that I got into first and then fell back into the other side, which is actually where more of the money was, the <laughs> casting end. So, yeah, one thing led to another. 
So I kept doing that while I was doing other things. I wrote scripts. I wrote some industrial scripts. There was a company in Des Moines that used to do these uh, uh, training films. It was, a, it was one of the biggest in the company called American Media. And so I did some writing for them, and I did other writing for other people. So I was making living still doing freelance work. I started doing freelance production for one of the production companies in town because I had the background to do that. So I could still do creative things while I was doing these other things. So I ventured out into a lot of different areas, shall we say. And it seems like you didn't end up miserable. I have my moments, but (laughs) I'm still not necessarily doing what I want to be doing all the time. But I at least have a little bit of the creative outlets. Again, Mm -hmm. like the theater to go. We just, uh, I think, as I mentioned to you, we fortunately, you know, COVID, of course, really shut everything down on the entertainment side. We just started, uh, well, last October, we did our first open to the public murder mystery at Jocelyn Castle. It sold out, you know, within less than two weeks, they sold out. So we did it again just this last uh, end of March, did two shows, sold out both of those in less than two weeks. So there's definitely a market. People really like it. That's fun. I like casting those things and like I said, directing them and so forth. And these are shows most of them I've written. Uh, so we're going to now be, hopefully, Jocelyn is now going to be our home for our open to the public shows for the foreseeable future. Our next show will be sometime in the summer. We're not 100% sure of the date yet. So where should people go if they want to check that out or check out really anything you're doing? Well, if they want to check out, well, the Jocelyn Castle, they can always go to the Jocelyn Castle website or they can go to to our Theater to Go website because on the last page I list open to the public shows right now. It's just saying stay tuned basically. (laughs) But, okay, the the website for that is uh, ttgshows.com. Okay. And they can get the information there. Uh... For the film, Reefer Madness, I still have the website because I refuse to ever close it down. Reefer Madness 2, with the number 2, dot com. Or they can just go to Amazon, right, and search Reefer Madness Or they can't. And, well, that's the problem with Amazon. That was also an interesting thing, dealing with Amazon. That was an experience all on its own. So, again, I learned a lot of things, (laughs) things I didn't want to have to learn. Uh, But, again, unless you're a big film, they don't really put it up there where you can see it. You can also go to our website, and I have a link that will take you there (laughs) more directly. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, that was an experience on its own because I thought, okay, well, people are doing this now, but now suddenly people can't find it because Amazon, again, won't let us really advertise it. Well, I think it's been a great story. Uh, It definitely seems like you are not afraid to talk to people. It seems like (laughs) that was not a big issue. You got over that. And, uh, you know, making a movie in general, putting together all these deals, uh, clearly there's been some success along the way, even though it sounds like it's been very frustrating. Yeah, well, that's show business in general. I mean, again, anybody who's been in the business long enough, you have far more frustrations than you ever have uh, successes. And like I said, I certainly learn a lot by doing this stuff. Uh, Yeah, I wish I had more money in the bank account to show for it. But, uh, yeah, I'll take what I can get at this point. You know, at least I'm not living in poverty. (laughs) Well, that's probably a good place for us to end. (laughs) So uh, I appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. It's been really fun to get to know you and your story. Thanks for being here. You're very welcome, and thanks for talking to me. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. <laughs>